Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. It's I, I'm actually kind of my mind has been frazzled from the last two weeks because we've just been at the Northern Shooting Show, and it feels like six months since we released the pot last podcast, but it hasn't been. It's been two weeks. We've we've had a lot of guests here recently as well. Yeah, we had. Uh, in fact, we had Tyler Sharp from Modern Huntsman, who's on next. He is on next, and he was with us. Uh, what is now last week. And then we had our film festival, then we had the Northern Shooting Show, and then Dia von der Lange, who's also been a podcast guest uh, on this show probably about, well, in fact, it was July last year. And we've got Scott McKenzie. Yes. So we have, they've been here this week. Dia von's busy entertaining himself with our dad right now, um, taking his racing pigeons for a run down the road give us time to do the intro to this podcast so it's been manic basically i might say that we actually recorded this podcast twice it was mentioned at the very beginning of the show but we spent over an hour and a bit recording the podcast and we pressed the button and it didn't record it and it was behaving like it should record i honestly raging so i was actually involved in yep. the entirety of the podcast three of us sitting and, in this very office where we we're and sitting then right now. um i'm not actually in it because um they had to go away and they were going stalking and then they had to record the other part at byron's house <laughs> um so very annoyed about that because there's some great discussion and as they said earlier on it was probably the greatest podcast ever recorded uh, <laughs> and no one will ever hear it so uh, that's that i think we covered some of the same ground again we, but we it was, did it was but difficult it was it, one of those things, I mean, we could have never recorded it straight after because otherwise it, it sounds ro- almost robotic, mm. you know, because if you've already said something, you're trying to repeat yourself. And you're also trying to remember if you've just repeated yourself yeah, 10 minutes so, ago or one so hour it ago. it was recorded hours afterwards. And also, you can tell they're both tired. Um, it was a manic week. I don't even know. Ugh, honestly, the last two weeks has been nuts. I um, haven't listened, but could you tell that we were tired? You, ca- you could. And, and genuinely, when they were, like, saying... Um, yeah, they were getting up in like four hours. It was four hours because I think it was recorded at like eleven o'clock at night. Oh, oh no, we finished at one. At one. Well, yeah. there you go. And the flight was at. We had to leave at four. Four, yeah, because yeah. this flight was it's like six, seven, six seven o'clock seven, in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, so I, that was recorded last week, and then we went straight into the Northern Shooting Show. Um, and I had an operation the week before. That's why, because I had an operation the week before, and I lost a few days again, once again. And um, I've now got stitches out, and I can bend my knee, which is brilliant. He's uh, been walking around like an invalid for the last couple of weeks. It's been, I hate it, absolutely hate it. So if you saw me at the Northern Shooting Show and I was hobbling around, um, that's because I had my stitches still in, and they were taken out, and I'm not joking, within one day, my leg was a thousand times better. Um, so, well, I guess we talk about the Northern Shooting well, Show. We could, well, uh, first, first, 12 hours before the Northern Shooting Show was the Film Festival, which we've been mentioning on the podcast for the last couple of weeks, telling people that's coming up. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was an incredible build-up because there was a lot to do on the Friday, uh, just prior to the, the Northern Shooting Show actually opening. And it was it was a great evening. It was great to have so many people. And there was there was an awesome buzz like during during and after. And it was great to have to meet all the people. It was great to meet all the members of the public who had bought tickets and uh, have all these people that we had invited in the same room and to be able to share fantastic films from, from filmmakers and hunters from all around the world, actually. Yeah, very cool. 
and next year we're going to try and open up to more public. That's yeah, I the think plan so. is as it's going to be bigger and better, bigger and better. And yeah, massive thanks to the team at the Northern Shooting Show for helping us out, put that on. The room looked awesome, so thank you, Beth. And um, yeah, it was great. And like every year. Um, unfortunately, Byron wasn't at the tent most of the time because we were kind of dueling with the, the, symposium, the area. symposium area as well. Um, but all of the people that come up and say, I've just listened to your podcast, and it's crazy to think we've been going for over three years now. Um, thank you for taking the time to come and see us. I mean, that's... It's great to meet people, especially those... It's awesome to meet you if we've met you before, but even better if we've never met you before in Europe and you talk about the podcast because... We see the numbers. We know that people are listening from all over the country, but we don't have faces to most of these people. No. So and and now, now we are. Now we do have faces. And apologies if I've met you before and I forget. We, so many people. I can't. I'm not the best with names, but um, honestly, we do appreciate it. And we had people coming up that have just started listening in the last two weeks, um, and now you've got a full back catalogue. Eighty um, podcast. And we've got we've got people that listen. It's amazing to hear commuting in their tractors or i mean we kind of knew this already how people were consuming it m- largely commuting and uh, yeah so it's super cool that we're part of your journey every day or if you're in a field farming we're helping <laughs> you your field plowing or uh, putting some crop down or yeah so it's, it's really cool and we've actually run out of podcast stickers because everyone everyone's bought them so we need to order more because um, we ordered like two or three hundred to begin with and they've already gone so uh we need to get more and they're all over we got sent a picture the other day of um uh, the podcast stick on the back of a truck in the united states which is yes. really cool and i know that a number of farmers now have it on the back of their tractors so yeah we're we're spreading all over the country that's what it's about so keep sending us your pictures of we, your podcast because yeah, we like to see we it. love to see it and like we said if we do see them about then you will be in line for winning something we gave away we gave away a whole heap of stuff uh, this weekend, because if you remember rightly, the uh, we said we weren't going to run a competition two weeks ago because we were going to well we weren't going to run a, a competition online because it was going to be at the Northern Shooting Society. So you had to be there and you had to show us a picture of your vehicle with a podcast. Eight there. o'clock on the Saturday morning, we had people at the tent. <laughs> yeah. So if you came at one in the afternoon, you were way you too slow. Up. You were way too slow. I but think we gave away three three, three Tipton cleaning rods. Yeah, and two Caldwell um, gun vices for resting your gun. And it's a perfect team up actually for for using it to clean, or if you're just working on your gun or putting scope mounts on. So um, yeah, they were gone. The coffee went down the storm, so thank you, because you know you're not just only supporting us; you're supporting the the charities they're involved in, and so did the t-shirts. It was really cool. Um, honestly, I know we kind of go on a bit, but it does help us run this show a bit. Yeah, it, it helps really does, it. and also a bit goes back to charity as well. So it does help support us. We are bringing out some new products. We actually brought out new mugs at the show, which they went down really well. So um, if you have, if you have a coffee, if you have a McNab coffee or a Gilly coffee, you can now drink your coffee out of a McNab and Gilly mug. Yeah, it's on the website, so you can go and check it out. Uh, Modern Huntsman update on that quickly. Um, we sold every single copy by Saturday morning at the Northern Shooting Show that we had physical copy, and then we were taking uh, pre-orders thereafter. Um, so and we know that the, our latest shipment is in the UK, so it should be with us very it soon. It is, and a lot of them are already spoken for, so get in there quickly if you want to order one and have it in the next few weeks, because otherwise you're going to have to wait for the next shipment. Incidentally, there is another shipment coming very soon uh, that we're away to place the order for, um, and there's quite a lot signed. Uh, ones in that because people have asked for it so if you want a signed copy then 
order one online and then let us know that you want it signed. Leave it as a note. And leave it as a note and it will come in the next shipment, but it could take two to three months to come. So yep. you've got to be patient. You've got to not want it now. Yeah. Um, but we, we have had a couple of people like, no, time is fine. Yeah, time, time is, is fine. fine because I want a signed copy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's it for that. Uh, just what I what I should have mentioned when we were talking about the film festival, however, uh, after Daryl did all of his uh, thank yous, is actually tell you who won. So you're going to be seeing a lot of stuff on the Facebook page and across our social media in the coming weeks, which is going to give you a little bit of an insight of what was actually happening on the night if you and, went and, there. And you'll be able to see the films because we'll you be will. putting them up somewhere. And many people have asked us where, how, to, where to see them. So, so you, you will be able to see Yeah, them. so we're going to sort all that out for you. Um, but just so, so that you know who won, and so you can go and chat. I don't actually have their, their Instagram names here or Facebook, but I'm sure if you just search for them, you'll find them. Uh, the the people who won the professional category, uh, which was to win a Sauer 404 rifle, which was donated by Blaza Sporting, um, was a film called Sea to Summit, and that was a joint collaboration between Preto Hunting, Footprint Media, and Nordica Outdoors. So massive congrats to those guys. It was a tremendous film, and I think everybody in the audience was in agreement of the night. You know that it. it deserve that that prize and that accolade so. we had quite a few judges tyler being one of them yep on the he was next. he was in fact yeah uh and then the amateur category which was uh to win a pair of minox binoculars and the very top model minox uh rifle scope that was pretty cool that was it never was, part of the bargain it to wasn't, begin with. no no in in the weeks that we've been talking about it, it was only ever a pair of binoculars and then robert from blaza came to us and said uh, i tell you what um do you mind? Do you mind if I give you a scope as well for the amateur prize? Like, of course, we no don't mind. problem whatsoever. I'm sure whoever wins this will uh, will thank you for it. So we had the the, the Minox binos and the scope, and that was won by Ulrich Orskov for his fantastic uh, fantastic film, incredibly emotional, incredibly raw, and just true to what it is to be a hunter. So he won that, and then after we presented that, we went on to the 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 MOTV. Emerging Film Talent Awards, and uh, to much anticipation, uh, the Rising Star Award, which was a cash prize of a thousand pounds, went to Robbie Kroger for his Blood Origins project. Yep, and he's been on the podcast before. He has, he has. yes. So you can go back and listen to the podcast with him. Uh, the highly commended, which was a cash prize of three thousand pounds, went to Simon Whitehead for his film Ahead of the Game. And uh, yeah, I think he he was a bit stunned actually he was, on the yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't really know what to say. And the overall winner was the same winner as, as the amateur category, which was Ulrich Orskov, and he got a cash prize of five thousand pounds. Pretty cool, and, eh? uh, and he put up a really cool video afterwards of did. him in the airport, lying on the ground sleeping. Um, we've got people in the office uh, yeah. just disturbing us with phones, phones and going off, phones boxes going off. moving. Yeah. So uh, have we got anything else to announce? Um, I don't think so. Um, we we are not running a uh we're not we won't be running a competition on the on this particular podcast because we gave so much kit away yeah, over we the did, weekend, yeah. uh, as we told you about earlier. So the next competition to be run you will see in two weeks' time. Um, we've recorded a whole bunch of podcasts recently, so we've, we've got some really cool guests coming up. We do. We've got in, more, in fact, we've one got... one of them is uh, is one of the people responsible for making noise in the office right now. As Deerfans <laughs> standing here, <laughs> smiling, uh, he's just he's just come back. I've recorded a podcast with him and Scott McKenzie, so you'll be hearing that. In the we next got some weeks. really really cool guests coming up in the next few months. Um, 
In fact, I'm not even going to tell, tell you all of them. Um, in fact, I'll tell you one of them. Um, I mentioned oh, months ago now, um, Kim Hughes, who wrote the book um, Painting the Sand. Uh, if you've not listened to the book or read the book, I'm not sure if it, I, I don't know. I listened to the book from Audible. Uh, if you've not listened to it, go and listen to it. It's about eight or nine hours long, and it's all about his... Um, his time in Afghanistan and um, incredible, incredible story. Uh, I'm not going to tell you anymore because we are going to have him on the show and he can talk a little bit about it and then you can also listen to the show. So well worth uh, um, going to check that out. Um, oh, congratulations to Sean Conway who just went and uh, who's a previous guest. You might have to look quite a few back now and he just broke the record for the fastest cycle across Europe, 3,000 kilometers, and he did it in like 24 days or something. Just nuts. The man's a machine. <laughs> I don't even believe that he's human. And it was his, what, second or third attempt? Third attempt, yeah. Unbelievable. We should try and get him back on again. We should, yeah, because he's back in, back in the Lake District again. And I just noticed today on my social media that Ben Fogel made a successful summit with Kenton Cool. And Kenton Cool was was the guide. It was his 13th summit. That's incredible. And he's actually a friend of a friend. So hopefully we can we can try and get Kenton Cool on because I think he would be a cool guy to have on. Yeah, excuse the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is about it from us. Uh, you're about to hear from Tyler Sharp, who was on with um, his partner in crime from Modern Huntsman, uh, Brad, uh, nine months ago. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so you're gonna hear. Well, we didn't realize that at the time him. they were they were recording in a truck. Yeah, <laughs> which I think it is mentioned in this show, but um, yeah. But you'll, yeah, you will enjoy this, uh, and if you're somebody who's already bought Modern Huntsman, this will just make you buzz, because you're going to get an insight into what's coming up in the future, and if you've no idea what Modern Huntsman is, but you're a podcast listener, you should go check it out on our website, or just Google Modern Huntsman, you can read it on their own website too. That little red light there is the record button. Okay. And that says six seconds. Do we trust it? (laughs) So I think it's recording. Okay. (laughs) So, Tyler, um, I think you might, and I might have a bit of deja vu here because uh, only a matter of maybe five hours ago, we recorded what we've decided is probably the best podcast that's ever been recorded in the world of podcasting. Yes. But this is just going to be a tribute to that podcast because um, when we came to take the file off, and I don't even we don't even normally check it immediately after. It's normally like bang done, move on. And we tried to download it, and it wasn't there. Uh, yeah, I went downstairs to I don't know. I went to go get a glass of water, and I came back, and the room was really quiet. And I kind of heard you cussing under your breath, and I just thought to myself, Oh no, it didn't record. So yeah, we had an hour and fifteen conversation that will be uh, just between us and and the buffalo. Yeah. Now Daryl is missing from. <laughs> take two mm-hmm. and he was there in take one because we are back first one we recorded in my office in our office um and now we are back it's rather it's quite late tyler is leaving in a matter of hours yeah about uh, five hours <clears throat> yeah uh it's quite late at night and we're back in my house we've just come back from roebuck stalking so daryl is back sleeping at his house somewhere but tyler was feeling man enough to try and brave another hour Ish. <laughs> the only reason I'm doing this is because you have a big bottle of scotch, and I'm going to see what kind of a den I can put in it. Do you know, I think I, I kind of deserve this because uh, I was talking about this with you earlier. I heard Ben O'Brien speaking to Remy on a podcast that he did, and Remy was giving him stick because he basically did the same thing. And they recorded this long podcast, and the file corrupted. 
and that was it, game over. Yeah. And continually throughout the new podcast that they recorded, it was a reference back to the awesomeness of the first one. So Well, I'm also staying I'm also staying with you, so I don't I can't really escape. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's almost like I've cornered you now. I, you have I, no I'm choice. Re-energized. We had a fantastic evening stalking road deer. It gave us the slip, but it was still cool to see quite a few uh, quite a few deer. And then we had a pretty close encounter with a fox. That was interesting. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. really cool. He didn't know we were there. And would we have been the the fox hunting type? I think uh, he would have been in trouble. But got a couple of couple of seconds of cool footage and. Hmm. And then he figured out and headed for the hills. Yeah, it was it was it was really nice to watch him so close up. And I think he was picking up slugs or he was mousing around in the field as well. He was having a snack of some yeah. kind. Yeah, it's nice to watch them. What what was that? I mean, you've were, you've actually been doing some uh, robux stalking in the last week before you came to see me. What is that experience like, robux stalking here in Scotland slash England compared to hunting you might do at home? it's been it's been amazing uh you know i think i came into the uk with a very limited knowledge of the type of hunting and the parameters and especially in context of what we've been talking about in in terms of public lands and that kind of stuff um you know and to be fair a lot of what i've perceived to be about hunting in the uk was you know the sort of estate bird shooting driven shoots and the traditional tweeds and all that kind of stuff and so i really didn't know much about um roebuck and and the how you hunt them and where you find them and, you know, how you even get access. And so in most of these cases, the last week, it's been, um, you know, sort of relationships or partnerships that local people have with farmers to gain access to the land. And in a lot of cases, it does them a favor because the deer are, there's so many of them, they're eating their crops or they're, um, you know, various factors. Um, and I was a little bit jet lagged, so I didn't retain all of the information they gave me. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to, uh, to kind of see, um, you know, how many of them are are over here. And I tried to learn as much as I could about the history, but, um, yeah, it's interesting because the farmland over here is so much more beautiful, in my opinion, than what would be the traditional farmland in the American Midwest. Okay. Is that just because it's a bit more broken and smaller fields? And- it's usually just corn. It's usually mm. cornfields, and it's usually very brown and dead, and in a lot of cases, very flat. And I know that there's deer hunting elsewhere in the United States, but at least you know in Texas and Oklahoma and, and, and uh, Kansas and Missouri, that kind of thing. Um, so... <clears throat> It doesn't feel like a farm. It felt like, I don't know, a foreign landscape, which I guess it is to me. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was interesting. I really enjoyed it. And it's it's so lush and green right now. And, you know, the, the water's moving and, you know, there's trout down there. And uh, there's we saw a ton of birds. I was really impressed by all the bird life. Yes. Yeah. Well, this morning, we, um, we'll, we'll rewind to what we did the day before. But this morning, uh, I took Tyler to go and try and see a black cock leg. Unfortunately, they weren't displaying quite how I would have liked, but to translate, you got to see them. To translate for our U.S. listeners. Oh, yeah, that's probably quite important. <laughs> a black grouse, basically what, what would be strutting around, they, they yeah. do. So you it's call like it the rut. Lecking, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so lecking is the, the male black grouse sort of strutting around and 
puffing up his tail feathers, kind of like how turkeys do. And we didn't really get to see the full show, no. but there was a bunch of males all kind of eyeing each other and, you know, sizing each other up. Um, and we could hear some in the distance doing it. Hmm. But uh, from what I hear, it's a, a fantastic spe- spectacle. But that was a, it was cool to see the birds. Yeah, it, it's, I, I, you know, I, I've been fortunate to see them a lot. And even I, I get, as you probably gathered, I get quite enthused by it whenever I have the opportunity to take someone, especially if they haven't seen it before. Uh, it's nice to see them, even if they're not in full display mode, but... I think it was probably it was a really warm morning, so we've decided that that was the reason they needed it colder. Which, funny enough, actually, I wasn't th- I only thought about this after Daryl mentioned it this morning because he's been doing a lot of stuff with the birds recently. Is that it's the same thing that brings on um, the red deer rut? Is when you get that crisper morning, and it just suddenly one day can be a really warm, muggy day, and you hear nothing, and then you get a crisp morning, and then all of a sudden the hills are alive with roaring stags. But the day before we went to see the black grouse. I took you to meet a friend of mine on an estate not very far from the house here, Glen Ogle. Um, Danny Lawson's the head keeper there. Uh, just to, so that you could see what our uplands were like. I mean, what was that experience like for you? Because it, it is a different landscape. Yeah, and I think that, you know, to start with, when y'all were referring to it in conversation, you were calling it an estate. And so in my mind, it was this sort of uh, stately kind of thing or you know, but that's kind of synonymous with ranch for us where it's okay. a large tract of land in this case the part of the ranch we were on was about 20,000 acres yep. and he kind of walked us through the whole approach of managing the moorlands and the heather which is a fairly fragile growth almost like a small shrub yeah so it's like a like a stunted bush juni- almost yeah I suppose. almost like a stunted juniper bush yeah. That's obviously native to Scotland, and as you've told me, the majority of the heather in the UK or in Europe, well, the is world in, in the world. So is we, in Scotland. yeah, the well, we have the UK has more than seventy percent of the world's heather moorland, and the vast majority of that seventy percent is found in Scotland. So yeah, yeah. So I think that in this case, he was specifically talking about managing the landscape for the red grouse. Mm-hmm. to protect their numbers and to make sure that they thrive so that a few num- a few days a year they can hunt the grouse. And so it's a very complicated system of, you know, controlled burns in different areas of the heather. And uh, it was cool to stand way up on the top of the hill and be able to see the different patchwork of, okay, this heather was burned three years ago, this was two years ago, this was one that's coming back just now, and then seeing the effect that other elements of the the wildlife have on it with the <clears throat> the rabbits eating the new heather, um, so they try to you know either scare them out of there or manage the population, um, and then the same goes for the grouse with the the predators, the the foxes and the raptors and the crows and all the different kind of things. And so they have all these. He kind of walked us through all the different methods for either scaring these birds away or using the regulated numbers to either trap ravens or <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the whiskey's uh, <laughs> scratching my throat. Yeah, I think you might need another Probably one. drinking more. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it was really fascinating to um, to see how much thought and strategy and effort goes into managing that landscape to make sure that the red grouse thrives. And I've never, in, in the U.S., most of the wildlife management and land management that you hear about isn't necessarily, I mean, there, there is a lot of quail conservation, mm-hmm. um, but it's different. And, uh, it was really interesting to see that. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in Texas, so the landscape isn't as mystical to me. And then coming over here and there's, you know, 
ancient hills and, you know, stone monoliths and, and old mossy walls and, um, you know, traditional dress and, uh, and fancy accents and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was, it was something that was, um, a new experience to me and I gained a lot of respect for how much work goes into that. And I know that there's also other ways that they do that, whether it's for the red deer or the roebuck or, yeah. um, all the different forms of management yeah. for different species around the country. Yeah. yeah. I had a, you know, I had a lot of respect for that because I, I wouldn't qualify myself as, as much of a bird person, mm-hmm. um, so much as Charles Post would be, Yeah, uh, who I, I hear you're having on the show pretty we soon. We are, yeah, hopefully soon. We've been talking with him, but he had a whole bunch of teeth yanked out, so uh-huh. when when we were supposed to have the podcast with well, him, I don't think he could talk so well. <laughs> he needed more whiskey to get through He's it. definitely a bird guy, yeah. so I think, uh, you know, we've already been plotting to bring him back. So Charles, if you're listening, we're coming back in September, you're coming with me, yeah. and we're going to take you and s- to see all this bird habitat so you can geek out. Yeah, he, I, he, I can just imagine that you would love having a conversation with Danny and just mm-hmm. seeing. Because the one thing that you were also seeing today was that although, I mean, the primary con- concern undoubtedly on where we, where we were is driven grouse shooting, and that's what they're managing that landscape for, is the spin-off benefits to the other species. So we, we were looking at a lot of other species there, and curlew and lapwing, and then uh, some of those nests, because they've got a monitoring program there. I mean, that it's a, we won't dig into what they're, the study that they're actually doing, but we have made a film on it. But that, it's really interesting to see that dynamic. Well, and to see how much care and respect he had for these birds and, you know, this, what would otherwise be perceived as a, a, you know, a fairly gruff, you know, game manager that we, that we would call a ranch manager or maybe even an, um, you know, a guide of some kind. Mm. And he's walking delicately through the heather with his hands behind his back, kind of tiptoeing, look, you know, to not disturb these hens with, with the eggs. And, you know, they have certain areas marked with a little game, game or a trail camera so they can see, um, you know, any of the goings ons and to kind of learn about that. And, you know, he kind of, he, he kind of downcast his eyes and he was like, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard for, for me to explain to people how we spend 340 days a year caring for and protecting these animals so that, you know, for another, my I'm terrible at math, is it 25 days? Uh, did you say 340? 340. It's too late. Yeah. That, so, yeah, 20. Too... Yeah, it's about that. Yeah. Well, so, but yeah, I don't know how many shooting days there it, are. It depends Scotland. on the season. Right. So, it depends on how good the, yeah. essentially the crop of grouse yeah. has been. So, but for, for the, shooting, the moral so. of the story there yeah. is they spend the majority of the year protecting those birds to make sure that for a few, maybe two weeks a year or mm. whatever it is, three weeks a year, that they can actually harvest some effectively, which, you know, the, the money that's brought in from those hunts is what allows them to manage the landscape and, you know, ensure that the, the species thrives. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you could see that, that he gets to know certain areas and certain pairs of the birds and he's a, a caretaker and a steward of these eggs and is making sure that, you know, and he was explaining to me how, um, is it, is it the raven? If a raven gets into the nest, they just demolish all the eggs? Well, yeah, he was talking about ravens in particular because it, it has been an issue mm-hmm. in uh, in Scotland in particular and Tayside area, which is sort of neighboring the Angus Glens where we are now, quite controversially in the news, has had licenses 
uh, given by SNH, which is our sort of governing body, to cull a larger proportion of ravens, where the purpose has, historically, it's always been to protect livestock, to protect lambs, because they peck the eyes out and eat the ass out. And, you know, it's, it's pretty horrible. Yeah. Um, but this is actually to protect waders. So, like, we were looking at the curlew nests and the lapwing nests. Yeah, I mean, if you get a, a mob of ravens come over and they'll just scour that landscape and there'll be nothing left. And obviously there has to be, you know, there is a balance. It's not a case of, and this is the, the misperception when you see something like that make the news, is that the general public who don't take the time to look into that might suddenly think, well, now the aim is to wipe them out. But it's just to try and redress a balance. And I think Danny was trying, he was getting that across today yeah. when he was trying to explain to you. I mean, they don't have, uh, they don't have raven licenses here. Mm-hmm. That's, this is in a neighboring area, but... I think the ravens should just stick to delivering important scrolled messages. <laughs> That's where they've been going, right? right? Yeah. God, don't they know they get a casting call for Game of Thrones? <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to, to hear you having conversations with them because mm-hmm. you're looking at it with such a different perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there any kind of landscape manage- management like that in the states? Absolutely. I mean, I every in fact, I two days before I came over to the UK, I was in Comanche, Texas, which is <clears throat> kind of southwest of Dallas, you know, sort of northwest of Austin. And it was through the Kickstarter for Modern Huntsman, we had offered a, pa- a reward that basically commissioned me for several days to go out, whether it was a family ranch, or it was a store, or just, a, you know, uh, an individual that has an interesting story, it kind of commissioned us to go out and produce the story. So this family, uh, the Dillo family, all sort of pitched in to to buy this for their dad, who is a very dedicated conservationist and, and ranch manager. Um, and it's, I forget how many acres they had. I mean, it was almost 5,000, maybe 3,500, between 3,500 and 5,000. And the, uh, you know, his sort of perspective on uh, the need to manage the land versus a lot of the people uh, on adjacent areas that didn't really do anything. And in his case, he used the example of a lot of, you know, people from... I don't want to beat up on the coasts, but California or New York, you know, they, they think in their mind, oh, they want to have this ranch in Texas. And then they buy this big tract of land and maybe they come out there a couple times a year. But beyond that, they don't really do anything with it. And things like the mesquite tree, which is not native to that area, have just gone rampant and they've, you know, swarmed the landscape. Um, and, and so I spent two days with him and his family driving around uh, and, you know, the little Polaris four by fours. Um, and he's pointing everything out, the, the tree species, uh, the flower species, the different wildlife, uh, how it's changed, what's worse, what's better, um, you know, the, the patterns of rain and the erosion and what they've sort of done to combat some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that's just one little one example part of Texas. And Texas yeah. is so vast in, in landscape and variety. But then uh, all across the country, there's different um, things like that. So... Um, but in in contrast to what Danny's doing, Danny's doing that for a very specific species, mm-hmm. right? Versus maybe a ranch manager who's doing it for an entire landscape that's trying to encompass, um, you know, all the species as much as you can that isn't as specific to a type of hunting. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of those types of things, and we're hoping to to be able to highlight more of those as as we move forward with the modern huntsman stuff. So, mm. I mean, that, that, let's let's get onto that because. Mm-hmm. The, the last time we had you on the show, 
if we ignore the fact that you were on a few hours ago and <laughs> <laughs> we never recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Huntsman was this vision and concept that we were discussing mm-hmm. on this podcast. You were on the other side of the ocean with, uh, well, Brad was on that show with you. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we were sitting in a parked, in his parked truck in uh, Nakona, Texas, were my you? mom's hometown. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we, when we recorded that, uh-huh, yeah, we I didn't realize you were in a vehicle. Yeah, I thought we you were in an truck. officer. No. Oh, right. Yeah. That's, that's, I wish I'd known that when mm-hmm. we were just, to, I like to visualize where the people are that I'm speaking to when it's not in person. So yep. there you go, parked truck. Uh, and it was something which you were very much hopeful mm-hmm. uh, that it, it was going to come to fruition and we were going to see this publication, but it hadn't happened at that point. I mean, the Kickstarter, I think it only just started when mm-hmm. we had the conversation and, and recorded the podcast. That has come and gone. The publication is out. We've, you know, we, we've had this discussion already, but the the take up here in the UK and the feedback, importantly, the feedback from those people who have had it in their hands has just been phenomenal. I think, you know, a, a massive congratulations to you and the team that has helped put that whole thing together and make it possible. What's that journey been like? Because it's, I've been so impressed by it. You know, everything from the take up to, I had no doubt you were going to deliver, but actually when I had it in my hand, I was like, shit, <laughs> he really did deliver exactly what they promised yeah. and more. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for one, reaching out so early on. Um, and I think it was uh, really gratifying and, and sort of affirming for us to connect at such an early stage because it sort of reinforced how similar, not just you and I think, but also so many other people who think the same way but feel like they're not represented mm. fairly or accurately or or broadly. And so, uh, and the re- response in the UK has been insane. We had no idea that it would be received this well. And y'all are what, on your fourth order of stocking or third? I think so, yeah, fourth Y'all now. sold out already and then you're already going to be gone. I know that by the time we finish this podcast, you will have already been at the Northern Shooting Show. Yeah. But... You know, it's been unbelievable to see the response. I knew instinctually that this would be big eventually. I didn't know what the timeline was. I knew I didn't. I wasn't sure how long it would take to get the word out. And granted, we we are still getting the word out. It's it's nowhere near what we want it to be. But the response has been incredible. The Kickstarter went really well. Our original goal was seventy five thousand. We ended up raising I think about one hundred and three thousand. And even though we didn't have as many individual people contribute as we thought we would. Uh, it, it was um, it, It's opened all sorts of uh, doors that we had no idea would open. Um, one of those being we've now, as of two weeks ago, founded a nonprofit branch, a Modern Huntsman Foundation, that basically came about because we had all these people coming to us whether they were individuals or patrons or um, you know just people interested in supporting what we were doing or a nonprofit organization, a conservation group saying, hey, how do we get involved? How can we do this? Do y'all have any sort of you know nonprofit branch where we we can you know get a, a tax write off? Yeah, people wanted to support yeah, and, something, and we yeah. after about the sixth or seventh time that we said no, we all kind of looked at each other and we're like. We probably should figure out how we can say yes to that. So we now sort of have this set up, and we're in the process of nominating board members and and creating an advisory board and all kinds of crazy stuff that makes me feel like an adult. (laughs) And, you know, with, with the intention of creating basically a conservation fund where we can now say, okay, 
Byron and Daryl, rather than have to hustle and and scrape and ask all these different companies, you know, to fund what you're doing, we're going to say, hey, take this and go do this conservation film or, you know, that way that's going to enable us to sort of commission the work that we feel like is important and enable the people that we feel like are doing wonderful things to keep doing it and not have to worry about, you know, watering it down. And, and sure, we all, we, we still want to work with brands and we still want to work with organizations because there's a lot of people who are doing great things. Um, but that's going to free us up to be uh, a little, a little more uh, masters of our own destiny kind of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> and so with that, um, it's just, it's just been unbelievable. And, uh, and it's, it's very surreal. I mean, I'm, I'm here now because I met, um, you know, his name's Anthony Traeger, the, um, Trey gear trigger is his nickname, yeah. managing director of Wesley Richards at SCI. And he was, he saw, he had it in his hands and he was basically like, holy shit, you need to come see what I'm doing because we need to talk. He's like, I don't want to talk about it over the phone. I want to talk about it in person. Just come over to the UK you know, I want to show you what I'm doing, what I'm working on, and let's talk about, you know, this and that. And it's just, it's something different to talk about, but when you actually get it in your hands and it's a 204-page book, I mean, I can't say, people say, oh, if it's a book, it should be hardcover. Well, it's not hardcover, but it's pretty much a book. And uh, It's a book, yeah. Yeah, and, and we're doing two years, so we're releasing one more in September. Hopefully in 2019, we're going to release three, which means it would be triannual, and as far as I know, no one else is calling something triannual. So I've never heard of triannual. Right? Maybe yeah. I should try. Oh, well, I should trademark that. Yeah. There was something else I thought of in our earlier podcast that no one else will ever hear. <laughs> what, what was, was it? I... Oh, he's a grouse shepherd. Danny's yes, a grouse shepherd. That was it. That term, grouse shepherd. And then we decided it would make That's a great title a film. for a film. So as maybe well. the first film that Modern Husband Foundation commissions is the grouse shepherd. The grouse shepherd. Yeah. I don't know. There you go. Yeah. Stranger things have happened over a glass of whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I can only imagine what a whirlwind it has been for you in the last six months. It has been. A lot of people have it in their hands now. And uh, we just had, I don't know, like half a dozen orders in the last couple of days. Mm. But for those people who are now hearing you talk, the first thing I'm going to do is refer them back to the original podcast I did with you because it'll be sure. an interesting you know, take. That yeah. was pre, this is now. We probably sounded very desperate. <laughs> I, I just, I think it was more, you, you carried with it and, and, and absolutely still are, an enthusiasm for a bright future. Yeah. And a future that, we can shape and change. And I think that's the difference is a lot of the conversations that I see, not always, because I, you know, I, I have the conversations that you and I have and we've been having over, over the last couple of months are, are very similar to conversations I have with other like-minded people here. But in terms of a direction and something to hold on to, it didn't really exist. And I think that's the difference. It's a, we have a future, and it's a future that can be shaped positively rather than continually defensively and negatively. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in my case, working in the hunting industry the last 10, 12 years, and, you know, and I've worked with a lot of the, a lot of bigger brands and, and organizations and publications and things like that. Um, and it's all well and good. But my frustration was that I felt like they were always talking to a room full of members of the same club. And about like, yeah, this is what we think, right? And everybody would be like, yeah. 
But then when that conversation turned outwards and it turned to a non-hunting audience or even worse, an anti-hunting audience, it was bad. It was heads butting together and it was not constructive and it turned into kind of an aggressive conflict. And we knew that there was a better way to do this and that there was a lot of other people who were already doing this, right? A, a, an endless, not an endless amount, but a, an overwhelming amount of incredibly talented photographers, writers, filmmakers, thinkers, whatever you want to call them, who were already doing this and nobody was really showcasing it all in the same place. And Brad, my business partner, was the one who basically kind of just stumbled on that right? As a creative exercise, he was working on a branding project for our other business partner, Elliot, who has a, a, a store in Corsicana, Texas called Freedom Shooting Sports. Brad, in his past life, and when I say past life, I mean eight months ago, had a creative agency that did branding and marketing and all that. And he didn't grow up as a hunter. So he basically approached branding Elliot's shop as a creative exercise. And hey, how do I make hunting cool, right? Mm -hmm. And then he realized there's people already doing that. And so by accident, he kind of started the Modern Huntsman Instagram and just to showcase almost as a creative exercise, right? Almost as a mood board. Yeah. And all of a sudden, people started seeing it and being, you know, and, and the following started to... Yeah, they know, just ramped up. Spike. <clears throat> that's about the time it popped up on my radar. Hmm. And I don't know if I told this story last time in the podcast. I, I don't think so, actually. So I saw it and was like, this is interesting. This seems like something that I've been thinking about, right? And I reached out to Brad and I was sure that he was in Bozeman or Denver, or, you know, Seattle or somewhere else and, you know, messaged him on Instagram and he's like, no, 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 I'm in Dallas. I'm like, no way, that's where I live. So I ended up meeting at the coffee shop down the street from my house and he kind of gave me, this is the very beginning stage, this is about two and a half years ago, gave me his sort of vision and well, I'm thinking about doing this, I'm thinking about doing a magazine maybe, you know, but I don't really know. And, uh, when I'm passionate about something, I know I can be a little direct. And I said, Hey, look, I know this is going to sound weird because you just met me, but what you just described is probably going to be my life's work. And you need to hire me as your creative director right now. <laughs> and I remember him kind of, you know, saying, okay, um, well we can talk about that. Yeah. Uh, but I love your, you know, enthusiasm. So anyways, fast forward now, all of that stuff has come true. Um, you know, Brad and Ellie and I sort of moved this thing forward. I kind of took the reins as, as, as creative director, just really because of my background. Um, and then I'm editor in chief of the magazine. Brad is much more on the digital marketing strategy side. Um, him and my girlfriend, Katie Smith, um, and her company is called drop cap design. She's the one who designed the magazine. So we and it's beautiful. It, she did an absolutely Stunning. incredible job. She designed several publications, but we very much wanted to bring, uh, some much needed, she likes to call it minimalism. I just, I just think it's, it's just a little more focused on the work versus, um, there's less distraction. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And from so the content. clean design, simple typography, uh, feminine sensibility. And, uh, and they really are, uh, helping shape the design of the design side of things, which really is targeted at a non-hunting audience. Like, you know, what we've produced, 
will live up to the standards of, of, of hunters and, and conservationists and the people I know. And that was one of my qualifications is that I said, this, this has still got to be something that we can all agree on. And those members of, of these clubs and, you know, the, the older um, organizations and things, they still, this has got to be something they can get behind, but we have to tone it um, and package it in a way that's approachable for someone who's not a hunter. And that's been, I feel like we've been very successful with that, I think largely because of Brad's non-hunting background, because he previously, even though he grew up in Texas, had sort of a negative view of hunting and thought, well, this is just kind of a redneck thing, and, you know, I don't really want to drive a jacked-up truck and, and, you know, wear camo and and put a bloody buck on on my hood, because, you know, some people do that, and that's fine, there's nothing against that, but in my opinion, that sort of turns people off who aren't hunters and they think that when they see something like that that that's what hunting is and there you know there's other sides of hunting that we felt like wasn't getting uh, the 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 spotlight it deserved <clears throat> so we're trying to do that and uh and people have sort of flocked to that banner because um you know it, it, we are in a day and age now where whether it's social media or as we were talking about in podcast version one, five hours ago, online polls, right? And in even government decisions are being made by polls of the public. The BC grizzly ban was the one we we brought up as an example. Right. So if the public is not informed and they're going to make a decision based on either their emotion, their instinct, or what they read last online and i think we can all agree that in a lot of stuff you see online it's whoever yells the loudest and in my opinion a lot of the people we're representing in this magazine uh who are ethical hunters or conservationists or you know food harvesters for their family they live pretty quiet private lives and they're not going to be the kind of person doing a facebook rant or you know trying to grab news headlines and things like that so for the average person watching TV or looking on social media, they're probably not going to see any sort of hunting media that makes them think, oh, you know what? I don't agree with this slander campaign. So we're trying to make sure that we are, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily, it's not propaganda. We're not, It's you know, thoughtful discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's something that, you know, y'all have built your entire podcast and, and, and reputation on is, is trying to have logical, balanced conversations about difficult issues, and I think where you and I really agree on things is that not only are we trying to have these conversations, we're trying to present solutions, right? And that's tricky because there's a spectrum of, of, of black and white and, you know, any number of shades in between, but I think that in the same way that we would all agree on virtues, right? Honesty, loyalty, integrity, bravery, whatever that is. We can all agree that those are good things. So what we're really trying to get to the heart of, and I know that y'all do this too, is what are those virtues of hunting? What are those things with hunting and conservation that we can all agree on that those are good things? And it's not about pointing out the bad or, you know, this guy's a hero, that guy's a villain. And as Charles Post always says, it's a case of, of, of best practices and could be better, right? And so by pointing these out, we're saying, hey, look, we think that this is, these are the, these are the, the wins. These are the triumphs, right? And if we can focus on that and show the good work that's being done, hopefully, you know, down the trickle effect will be that either people will side with us, not necessarily side with us, because it's not about taking sides, um, but at least... Or it's, un- it's understand. Yes, yeah. yes. And accept. 
and then maybe some of the uh, the the rest of the industry or maybe somebody who wouldn't necessarily uphold those values might be inspired to want to improve or be better um, yeah. you know or, or, or at least think about what is their what are their values and why mm. right why and again like we talked about earlier that all of this comes down to use of the land right how do you use the land or how do you not use the land yeah. and that goes back to what Danny was doing right yeah. because there's areas of these heather moors where they don't touch it for a certain period of time right and that that's applies and, and that's you know, a common topic of debate, right? But the reality, especially here in the UK, because it's such a small landmass, that civilization has spread so much, and there's so many people in the world now that there's very few places left where the natural order... The hand of man has, especially here, like you say, because yeah. it's so small, yeah. has touched everything. Yeah. And so we, we have to play our role in trying to readdress some of the unbalance that essentially we are responsible for as man. Yeah. And it's explaining the reasons why we have to do that. And I think, uh, as is often the case, you might have people and organizations at the, the sort of polar opposite ends of the spectrum, but quite often we want the same end result, but might disagree completely on the journey that we need to take to get there. Yeah. But actually acknowledging what the end result is and what that use is. So that goes back to, to land use and what we expect from that and what what positive outcomes we expect from the land, that environment, the habitat, and the wildlife that lives in it. We can probably find the tie-ins along the way so that we can work together a bit more. And I, I would love to see more of that. Yeah, and I think that it's also good to consider the locality of those things, right? Because the practices we have in the United States may not apply to here in the UK, right? And and you and I have both spent a lot of time in Africa, and, and as the saying goes, there needs to be African solutions to African problems. You yep. can't take a Western solution to something and apply it to a situation in a foreign country where that maybe that doesn't work culturally or geographically or any of those things, right? And so I think that that's something to really consider, um, that, that there isn't necessarily a universal system other than the the ethics and the, uh, the, you know, the thought that goes into that process of getting to the answer, right? And I think that it's just important to think about what those things are. Yeah. And I would also add to that by saying that and this is a, a sort of a, a phrasing and a thinking which I've I've borrowed, and I as I credit it whenever I can remember to do so to to Shane Mahoney, who's a a gentleman that we've we've talked about before, and who indeed has been on this podcast. Um, is that from his viewpoint, and, and I I agree with him. Is that if we do things to make sure that the wildlife is coming first then it's very hard to go wrong. Yeah. And that might take, it might be a number of different ways that we get to that outcome. And like you're saying, it might be different in North America or it is different in North America to how it is here. How it is here. But if that is the goal, then we can't be doing anything too far wrong. And I listened to his interview with Ben O'Brien. Mm. So, by the way, Ben O'Brien's going to be 
one of my guest editors for Volume Two of Modern Huntsman awesome. that is themed around public lands, and we'll we'll get into that yeah, more we'll, here in a second. Yeah. But I, li- you know, he had Shane Mahoney on his show, and I believe that Shane's quote was he said, kind of the concept he views things as he said, "Is it good for the wildlife?" And if the answer is yes, he's for it, and if the answer is no, he's against it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that one is a fantastic system of of uh, justification but beyond that it forces us to ask questions that in today's world of hunting and conservation we may not always like the answer to it no. right it made the answers to those questions might be contradictory to some of the you know current situations or policies or this or that and i think that while there may be some resistance to change i think that it's good to at least discuss those things and say, okay, realistically, let's look at 2018 and do these certain policies. And I don't have a specific example no. off the top of my head, but I think that, you know, that's sort of some of the pushback. We haven't received a lot of it, but I feel like we're going to receive a lot of it, especially from some of these larger organizations who've been ingrained. Maybe they're older um, in age, and and they you know they view us potentially as you know threats to what they feel to be as a historic institution and what they've established yeah. exactly. Um, but the reality is that times times have changed, and some of those things might need to be updated and and localized versus universalized because I don't think we can universally say this is good for everything everywhere. Yeah. I think there there needs to be a reevaluation of the honesty with which we view what we do. And I think that is that's coming through in the kind of conversations that are being had in Modern Huntsman. And it's it's just taking the time to ask that question as well. It's something that I often say to people when we're having the these debates on, you know, whether certain aspects of hunting maybe should evolve maybe we should be doing them something uh, in some way differently is just look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself why are you doing what you're doing and you need to be able to have the answers to those those questions and yeah. but they're not easy questions no, i'm not. not i'm not suggesting that they are and I'd, but the fact you have those conversations with yourself means that you have those conversations with other people and you learn a lot by doing that right and i think that maybe if you're not able to answer that question right away, it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong per no. se, but because some of those are difficult, right? I think if a lot of people tried to articulate why they hunt or if somebody cornered them and said, hey, how can you justify killing something that you claim that you love? That's a difficult answer, right? So, but the process of thinking about it and and the other side of that that we talked about earlier is for you know, the critics, right? So let, let's take Danny, for example, your, your friend here in Scotland that manages the moorland for grouse. You know, they have to shoot foxes yep. sometimes. They manage the fox population because these foxes just ravage the grouse nests. So there might be some people who say, hey, we're against you shooting foxes, right? And And this is why, because we like the animal. But if we switched and maybe let's say that that's a banker in New York city. Okay. And I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to 
Keep just, going with the analogy. This analogy. I'm going to yeah. keep going, but <laughs> I'm, going. I'm, it's probably not. You just gonna... poured another half whiskey, oh, so I was yeah. thinking the analogy is going to go fine. That was more than a half. <laughs> 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 Might have just done a full glass, but let, let's say um, let's a ba- it's a banker in New York City, right? So if you try to explain it to him in terms of you know, a, 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 your ability to do your job or your ability to protect your, your livelihood. Um, and you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to change that. Not Danny managing the grouse, but let's say a farmer who has these crops that we just met the other day. The, the, oh yeah. Know, just there's, there's, there's yeah. rabbit rabbits everywhere and they're in there. You can see the semicircle of where all these rabbits have just eaten the crop before they, before it's ever grown in. And yeah. on a certain scale that causes the farmer it does damage to his business. It's immediately putting him at a financial loss. And I don't know how many farmers your listeners know, but farming is a hard life. Probably easier here in Scotland than it is in somewhere like, you know, the panhandle of Texas where it's a, can be a dust bowl. But there's, they really have a lot going against them in terms of the weather or the drought or insects or all those kind of things. So in those cases, you know, a wild wildlife abundance like a rabbit could actually negatively affect the livelihood of a farmer and in in certain cases might be the well-being uh, of his family right and so in those instances they're taking action to make sure that they survive right and it and not, not necessarily life and death but whether it's a, a life of struggle or a life of something slightly more comfortable yeah. right so turn that on its head in a situation like a, a banker or this or that. If there was something happening that was preventing them from being able to do their job and was immediately putting them at a financial loss and a disadvantage, you would, in most cases, take action to remove that obstacle. You would find a solution to that problem. And I think that that's something important to think about on the opposite side of things. That, And yeah, you know, people might have an opposition to wildlife being uh, a factor in what would be considered, you know, a, a livelihood or a commerce, but that's the reality. The, the, the intersection of wildlife and humans is something that is only going to get worse. Yeah. Right? And so It's all around us. It is. And it's, it's very often hidden. I mean, yeah. that example that you've just given... I mean, we were shooting rabbits on the farm across the road mm-hmm. here for that exact purpose, uh, and they're in the fr- uh, in the yeah, fridge we, now. We uh, we, you're home. not being able to eat them before yeah. you've left, but I'm going to eat them. They're still <laughs> in the fridge. Yeah, thanks um, for that. <laughs> is that a lot of the sort of more urban, or not necessarily urban, but quite often urban and discon- disconnected populace from the land? probably aren't actually aware that when they eat their Weetabix in the morning, maybe some rabbits died for that. And it's it's an ignorance that isn't necessarily their fault, I don't think. I think from a, a hunting perspective, to explain what we do, we've been pretty poor at tallying those stories, stories that you're now tallying in, in Modern Huntsman. Uh, and then I suppose there's a, a greater society question of just trying to reconnect people with lives that we take and how we affect the landscape in general everything from actual just agriculture because i mean those you know those are lives too they're not wild lives but it's still lives and that there's a massive disconnection there yeah and then rebuilding those connections to the you know wildlife and actually harvesting wild food sources for the table well and then you know the term pest control right Mm -hmm. The fact that in the United States we have 
any number of, you know, wrapped vans that have cartoons of dead bugs and this and that, you know, that these guys get paid to come into your house and shoot a bunch of chemicals and kill all of your pests. Well, the term pests is relative to where you're at and what your practice is. And so, you know what I mean? And so, sure, maybe we can all agree that the life of a cockroach isn't worth the life isn't equal to the life of a rabbit, but what, who says, who determines that scale? Right. And so I think that that term is real, you know, has to be kind of applied. It is. And and I think that depending on, uh, depending on the country you're in and how society has shifted, certain species come in and out of that. Yeah. So we, and we've almost got to a situation in terms of perception, that in some parts of the country, deer are seen as pests. Yeah, definitely. So what are the implications of that? It means that they are not treated with the same reverence and respect that they deserve. And I'll take that a step further. I think that we need to make sure, and this isn't this isn't just hunters that need to try and tell these stories, but you know, this is a, a greater question and a bigger picture, that we need to make sure that people, us as humans, understand the value of all life. Because we see it with fish. There's a crisis with of fish going on in, in Scotland right now, especially on the West Coast with fish farms. Um, we, we've covered it on the podcast before, but the fish farms have been responsible through the sea lice of massive declines of sea, of sea trout in particular. Nobody sees, seems to care. Why don't they care? Well, it's something that they don't see. It's also cold and wet and slippery and it's not cuddly and and relatable but it's still life Mm -hmm. you know who says that that life's any more or less worth than the deer on the hill or the fox or any other species that you can pick yeah it's not just a uk problem no i agree um you know and i think that that kind of leads well into what we talked about at length and in our previous podcast (laughs) Um, is the theme of volume two, which is public lands. Yeah. Right. And, and it's obviously a hot topic in the, in the United States right now, as it pertains to, you know, we, we sort of, as Americans have inherited this wealth of public lands that for the most part was sort of created by Theodore Roosevelt. And, uh, a lot of people, especially now as things become increasingly urbanized have never accessed the majority of these places and even me who spent a lot of time in montana have not even scratched the surface it's of, vast, oh, it's right? no, on a scale that more, i probably can't even think of. more land than you could probably ever explore in your lifetime wow. and that's at risk potentially you know and i to, just to be clear here I do not consider myself an expert on the political landscape of this situation, which is why I'm bringing in guys like, you know, Ben O'Brien and Brad Christian. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation on the next issue and, and Yeti and, and Epic Provisions and, um, and Chama Chairs. And th- those are some of our sponsors for, for volume two, because I want to be a facilitator to bring, you know, experts and, uh, and relevant voices to the table to discuss these things. Right. And so, we're, we're, with each issue, we're going to try to expand uh, not only the perspectives of non-hunters, but also the geographic representation. So for everyone listening, you'll be glad to know that Byron and Daryl will be contributing several pieces to Volume 2. Um, and uh, apart from that, we're going to be discussing not, not just those topics and struggles in the U.S. where, you know, there, there might be public lands that are being 
sold off for any number of potential uh, nefarious motives with oil drilling or you know gas access, whatever it might be, a lot of people see these buzzwords online and they don't really know what it means and they don't really know what's at risk and a lot and some of us don't even know what exactly happened right is it was it legal was it not legal and so we're trying to you know illustrate some of that paint the landscape but then we want there to be an actionable item right at the end of volume two of modern huntsman we're going to try to present all this information and then we're going to say depending on where you live this is what you can do or not do right we've got these things in the u.s it's different here in the uk hmm. What does it look like when you don't have vast expanses of public land like we do in the West? Because it's, t- it's taken a little while to, for you to understand that landscape here. Yeah. And well, so what was your perception coming here? Um, so I had asked a few questions. I think I had asked you previously about, okay, you know, how, how do you have public hunting access? And you, and I think it was just a, a sort of casual conversation we were having. You were like, not really. Most of it's private land. Mm-hmm. And I was in Italy recently um, and with Beretta and was talking with them about it. Hey, are there opportunities for the common person to just go hunt? And they were like, I don't think so. But I, so I don't really know if that means there aren't any or maybe they just don't know of any and it's not common but what i found fascinating about here even though most of this yes is private land you have the right to roam in scotland where you can literally walk on anybody's land at any time whenever you want yeah and that's fascinating to me because in the u.s private property is a is a serious thing there's legal implications for trespassing and the guns might start loitering firing, right? and and, I, and as i said earlier <laughs> depending on your geographical location and how rural of a town you might be in yeah you might get shot at if you're trespassing so the the, the fact that yeah we have a lot of public land in the US all of this land here even though it's privately owned is still public because yeah. you can walk anywhere. There's certain access available. Right. Yeah. And and you can't go walk anywhere you want and go start shooting deer. You got to have, you know, you need the permissions for it. Permission. And but you y'all don't have a permitting process, so you don't have to have a hunting license. No, there's no hunting license. Right, which is interesting. Um and and, and, and what you were telling me, which I I had no idea. Yeah. Is that I always imagined your public lands, you want to go out camp out or walk or whatever, you just do it. But you have a permitting system for camping in certain, in certain places. Yeah, I mean, it's different for for some states, but in the, for the most part, the federal, the national parks, you have to pay entry to go in, or you can buy an annual pass and you can gain entry. But then if you want to camp in those parks, you got to pay per night, per campsite, and if you and, and most of them, if you want to go do backcountry hiking, you have to apply in advance for a backcountry permit, and you have to pay for that as well. Of course, we don't have any of that. Yeah, yeah. Classic America shakedown at every corner. <laughs> um, different for some states, right? State parks are a little more. Um, you know, I know in Montana they have what's called dispersal camping, so you sort of buy the the annual state state forest pass, and you can kind of camp. And I don't know what the exact regulation is if it has to if it looks like a previous campsite, but it's it's not regulated anywhere near as strictly. You can kind of find a clearing. I mean, you can't like chop trees down and say, "Hey, this looks like a great camp place to set up camp." But for the most part, you can kind of go where you want. Um, so yeah, it's it's totally different. But it, it's really interesting to think that I could be a, a 
private, I could be a landowner here in Scotland and have this beautiful big lawn, maybe with a bunch of trees and maybe I live in a castle and people like my castle, right? So then people can just kind of show up on my lawn and decide they're going to bring some friends and lay out on a picnic blanket in the sun and drink wine. Or actually, they would be drinking scotch. Or tenants, actually, depending where you're from. Right. So <laughs> The Scots will get that joke. <laughs> so that's really interesting to me. And I know that, you know, as we talked about earlier, yeah, there, that, there's, there's, a, there's a boundary and there's sort of a level of respect. But in theory, yeah. But in yeah. theory, I and, mean... And do you know, the, the amazing thing is that there are obviously cases of people abusing the privilege that they've been given, sure. as there will be in any instance in right. any part of the world. And some of them being well publicized. Some of it is, uh, particular Loch Lomond, for people who live in, in the UK, will know that's a, a particular, it's very easy access to some big urban centers. And so it attracts more problems and rubbish and people just not leaving it as they found it, essentially, or maybe they are leaving it as they found it if there was a lot of rubbish there to begin with. But for the most part, if you consider the access that is available, for the most part, I would say people are pretty good. You know, they they, they like they behave themselves and they, they follow the code, generally speaking, which is which is good. Yeah, I don't feel like that would work in the U.S. You don't think so? I don't think people would follow the code. No. I think I think they'd turn up in their and start doing donuts on the lawn and, you know, blasting Van Halen and, you know, shotgunning beers and getting way too sunburnt and then probably... Oh, that happens here as well. <laughs> well, yeah. The sun only comes out one day. You've seen it. The sun was out today. That was the one day Shortly, of the year. and then it rained. <laughs> yes, it did. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. I You know, the, the sort of... Uh, that, that y'all are able to have a lack of regulation uh, by virtue of a inherent respect for other people's mm. area and i don't know if we have that same concept yeah. I, I think people will be fascinated to hear you talk yeah. about it in in that terms yeah because i think one we take it for granted it's not always been the case mm. i mean the right to roam's happened within my lifetime yeah so it doesn't always been like that uh, and they don't have it they don't have it in england and I would think that probably a lot of landowners and people of like country folk who mm. are in the landscape anyway probably are still a little bit like, you know, it's is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? But I think on balance, people are pretty good. Yeah. And, and that, and you actually just saw today because you, you, you were talking about this earlier that sign, the, the sign on the, because this is what prompted you to ask the question in the first place. Yeah. So, um, Danny, your friend, the gamekeeper, you know, we'd gone down this whole tour. He'd explained a very complex system of landscape and species management to protect the grouse, right? And we were staying on the road. If we walked off the road, we were following him because he knew where the nests were. We were being very careful not to stomp through the brush because those are potential, you know, grouse nests or whatever, and then at the end of our little safari, we get down to the bottom, you know, and we're kind of next to this little stream and we were talking about fly fishing. And I see this big sign that is sort of an educational sign talking about, hey, this is a, you know, uh, a delicate um, moorland with heather and these are the species and this is the balance. And it's something that we would normally see in the U.S. at at a trailhead or at the entrance of a national park that says, hey, these are some of the animals you can expect to see. These are some of the rules, blah, 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 blah. Enjoy yourself. But this was on private property. So this basically the sign was teaching the people who are exercising their right to roam 
basically saying, hey, please respect this landscape that we're working really hard to yeah, manage. The responsibility part of it. Yeah. Right. But there's no guarantees that, you know, they don't go stomping through the heather mm-hmm. and... Or let their dog Accidentally yeah. crush a grouse nest and, and, you know, smash some eggs or whatever. So that just kind of, I don't know, it kind of caught me off guard that we had just spent three hours, yeah, right? we were up there for Three hours time. with Danny learning about the complexity of this landscape. And then we get to the end of the tour that basically is like, oh, yeah, anybody can walk back here anytime they want. And I, a lot was, of trust. I was just like, holy shit, yeah. that's hard to, that's hard to swallow in terms of how we have it in the U.S. Because, mm. you know, if it's a private ranch and you're on somebody's private ranch just walking around, maybe you're, you know, just accidentally, you know, caved in part of their irrigation ditch. There's going to be trouble. You might, there might be some rounds buzzing by your head. You know, I, I just, um, it's interesting. And mm. I think that, with Volume 2 of Modern Huntsman, we really want to start showcasing the differences and the similarities in systems across the world. I think you're going down to New Zealand, Yep. Uh, what, next week? Uh, three weeks. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, hopefully you'll come back. Because there's a public land system there as well. Right. But hopefully. it'll be different. Right. So I yeah. think being able to, to glean some of what you've learned from that uh, and compare that to, you know, we've got another um, another photographer named Danny Christensen who's Danish, but he lives half, he splits time between Milan, Denmark, and New York. Sounds like a good life. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think we're going to try to start to pull from his knowledge of that kind of stuff. And, and expand the sort of the, the cultural diversity. His, his Instagram is the Urban Huntsman. Yes, and I know it, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Um, so we're, uh, and he goes on these, uh, uh, hunts on public land in upstate New York, he, you know, lives in New York city and escapes and goes on these public, public land hunts and then cooks these amazing meals and photographs it as a way to sort of educate people in New York city. Hey, look, not only, uh, and I love how, you know, the Danish are very no nonsense. Like, yeah, this is, this is what we do. Yeah. We, they we are go, like, we that, go yeah. hunt and we butcher it and we cook this food and that's just as much as we tie our shoes. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, there's no like apologies for it, no. uh, because it's just part of. But they're the nice, exactly. Yeah, no, it's not they're confron- nice about. It's it. not confrontational. Yeah. It's just, it's this is part of our nature, mm. and in the same way that you know, an elk isn't going to apologize for thrashing a tree and rubbing the velvet <laughs> off the antlers. Like <laughs> actually, know? it felt good. Exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I think that trying to show a spectrum of that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know what the end result is going to be in terms of, hey, what do we do? Um, but we will know that by the end of July, which mm. is when we're trying to have all the content turned in and all the stories written and all that kind of stuff. And excited people uh, people sitting there excitedly wondering when they might be able to get it in their hands without holding to you to an exact yeah, date. Uh, when roughly do you the, think? The goal is early September. Okay. So the goal is for it to be out uh, around the hunting beginning of the hunting season so that, one, I can enjoy the hunting season. Uh, but two, which means that with my imminent return to Scotland in <laughs> September, maybe we can have a launch party out here. Yeah. Um, location to be determined. But uh, yeah, Tyler that... was busy cherry picking various castles around Scotland. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone listening uh, knows someone who might want to uh, donate the use of their castle for a Modern Huntsman launch event, please let us know. I'm sure Tyler will even sign a free copy of the magazine. I'll sign a lot of stuff. 
<laughs> uh, and now the scotch is talking. Yeah. No, it. Yeah, I'm. I'm excited about that. I'm. I'm excited about volume two and the future. I mean, what you've talked about the. We'll kind of use this as a way to to wrap up. But you've talked about the the foundation and what potentially that's going right. to achieve. We know volume two is going to be uh, public land focus, but going on into the future, what? How do you see it evolving in terms of the kind of things that you you cover? Yeah, I think. Or you're just going to see what's happening sort of uh, year to year. I think it's going to be a mix of both. I think that, you know, there's going to be certain issues that are pressing, mm-hmm. and so I think we want to be relevant in certain cases, um, given the fact that the amount of effort and time it takes to put one of these together, we can't be doing, you know, overnight reviews of things per se. And we, and, well, that's not true, um, because we are going to be releasing a lot more content online. So hopefully, okay. with the foundation um, and and potentially some some more support coming in, um, and as we sort of prove the model to media companies and 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 brands and organizations, that we're going to be able to expand uh, the frequency and scope of of the stories and and so the, some of that will be a bit more reactive because it's online. Yeah, but I think uh, but also strategic, right? Okay. So um, I think we're going to be able to increase the frequency in which we're releasing material whether it's online or it's on instagram um and it's something you and i have discussed quite a bit in the last few days is is releasing films so we want to be releasing um work quite quite a bit more frequently um you know modern husband wants to sort of be um creating their own original programming but then beyond that you know we want to be an aggregator of all of these films that are already being produced because right now you know there's some great films that are out there but they're they're scattered all across the internet on different YouTube channels or, or individual pages or, or, or this or that. And so we want our website to be a central hub so, yeah. to where the place you, to go if you wanna if you wanna gather if you want to consume that information. Right. Right. Yeah. But then we also want it to be a resource of information and that's something I'm leaning on um, Simon Roosevelt for, our one of our main advisors and who's been a mentor to me through this whole process. Um to be able to say, okay, well, these are some facts. These are some figures. These are some numbers. These are things we know, right? And if you, even even down to the something as simple as if you live in the state of Tennessee and you've never hunted before and you want to you want to do it, how do you go about it? What's the process of getting a license? What are the seasons? Where can you go? Where can you not go? Who should you talk to? Who should you not talk to? You know what I mean? So in terms of uh, we want to be approachable, we want people, uh, especially with what's going on right now with the sort of whole interest in organic food and knowing where your food comes from and making sure because we, you know, I don't know if I trust the, the food industry. I don't trust the food industry. Okay. Did you right. did you hear? I was trying that to decoy. We, <laughs> did you hear about two years ago the scandal here of us being fed horse meat when it was supposed to be beef? No. Oh yeah, like almost every major supermarket was involved in that. We were all eating racehorses from Ireland. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, that's a good example of what. So and that's why I don't trust them. Yeah, and and you know, you could we could go down the line, yeah. and and I think that you know that's a, another good point is that I, honestly I feel like, and I don't want to say a lot of the opposition, but I feel like a good portion of the opposition that maybe animal rights or anti-hunting groups or or even potentially vegans that the way they the reason they feel the way they do 
a lot of it has to do with the big beef or chicken or pork industry in the United States or maybe in the world, right? The cruelty of mass mass chickens globally. Yeah, is just, just yeah. it's you know, and then we've all seen. We were talking about that rotten <laughs> documentary Great the other documentary. day. Yeah, um, just about the lack of the industrialization of animal harvesting right mm. and so the opposite of that in terms of ethics is what we do yeah which is it couldn't be farther from it right harvesting our own meat and so if someone was interested in doing that we want to be a resource to help them do that or if they don't want to be the ones to do it themselves well then maybe we can help provide them with that and um katie my girlfriend's roommate is a vegan and she actually after reading Modern Huntsman Volume One, said, "You know what? I would eat, I would eat meat that was, was respected and yeah. harvested like that." Yeah. And uh, and I I, sh- I I went and hunted a couple of wild hog in, in Texas earlier this year, and uh, and and had chorizo made out of it and some breakfast sausage, which is absolutely amazing. And so we've talked to her about doing some sort of cookout, you know, and and mm. and sort of introducing. And I and I. I granted I don't really know what the strategy is there if if you need to like introduce that in small amounts if that causes you know any sort of shock to a system or whatever but mm. the point is that she's open to she was idea. open to it yeah. and she's not the only one we've it's actually, amazing how many people shockingly are we've had a lot of proclaimed vegans order this magazine and tell us that they did because the tone we have is different than anything they've ever said. And they actually could, you know, perceive our respect, uh, for, you know, for for our harvest. Yeah. 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 And that, that's really what it's all about. Yeah, it is. And it's been there for the most part all the time, Mm -hmm. but we haven't been telling the story. And now we are. Yeah. And that brings me to the, actually the last thing that we need to talk about <laughs> because I remembered that I nearly forgot when we did yep. the first recording, yep. which was that uh, this morning we all finished watching uh, the selection of films that have been f- uh, submitted to the DNA Film Festival, which mm-hmm. is the UK's first hunting film festival, which we are, we are running. It's on Friday, but when this podcast goes out, it will have been the Friday just passed. Yep. So the winners will have already been announced. And I'm not... Although... We've decided on them now. I'm not going to announce them in this part, but we'll do it in the intro to the podcast. Spectrum, spectrum films, wide spectrum films. How it was, it was good. I'm glad that I'm. I'm I mean, it was just, it was fortunate that you yeah. were here at this time, and it was, it was yeah. great to bring you in to help us process and, and think about what our opinions had been on different films. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for being part of that, Tyler. It was an honor, <laughs> and thank you to you and Daryl for making this happen. And I, as we talked about earlier, um, you know, just at a very base level, right. Um, uh, one of my best friends in Texas is a filmmaker and we've shared a studio the last two years and I always help him, uh, you know, give, give him advice, right. When he's, when he's going through the various rounds of edits or they're doing this or that, or they're trying to choose music and, you know, and I, and at the end of it, I, I've watched, these films 10, 15, 20 times, right? But then recently, it one of these films was accepted into a film festival and I got to go and see it screened on a big screen. And it's one thing to watch it on a computer screen, right? We're all bombarded with iPhone videos and YouTube videos and all that. But to actually see a film 
up on a screen and to have a room full of people. So you're expecting what? About 100 people. 100 people. That's a major accomplishment, right? And I think that that gets lost in today's world of, of mass media. So the fact that you have sort of spearheaded, you and your brother have sort of spearheaded this opportunity for both amateur and and, and young professionals to uh, show their work to a larger group for the very first time in the United Kingdom, it's fucking awesome, man. No, cheers, Tyler. And uh, Daryl brought this up earlier. It's important that I, that I also point out that that kind of thing is only possible or is more often than not only possible when you do when you have great collaborations with great people so we were really lucky the the guys at the northern shooting show which is the saturday sunday after the film festival when we pitched the idea to them they were immediately like that's great yeah we are 100 percent behind you use the venue we're supporting you and then after that came on the you know the, the support of, of Sour and Minox for the the professional and amateur categories and then the other thing that we had to decide uh, this morning was that we've got um, an MOTV uh, emerging talent bursary to give out which is a big cash prizes you know 5 I'm grand so excited three about grand that. 1 grand and these are going to to filmmakers who we think are going to be able to use this money to go forward into the future yep. and carry on making great content and better content by virtue of the support that's, yeah. that's the aim of that and that you know and it's going to be hard to talk about this without giving anything it is, away yeah. but you know i was well, it doesn't matter if you give away two it's something because well, well, it's, it's past but when this oh, comes out of course okay yeah uh, so you can whatever you were going to say you yeah can, so i just uh ulrich in particular yeah. um you know the work that goes into filming yourself on a traditional bow hunt in a forest in New Zealand is as as someone who's made films before the amount of work not only that would go into actually traditionally bow hunting animal but actually going through the extra effort of of doing the survivor man thing and filming yourself with a little handicap so to be able to watch films like this that um have such heart and such ethics but just basically lack the equipment that's it. And so the fact that you've created an opportunity for somebody like him to be able to step his game up and take him to the next level and potentially give him some recognition. Uh, and these guys deserve it. Absolutely. All of them. Because they're doing what has been important, what it was important to us for all, all of the, the categories mm-hmm. of the film festival. And indeed, when we, in terms of like the criteria of the kind of films we were expecting, yeah, was we wanted, we wanted great stories. Yeah where people were telling something and, and offering something up that was more than just, I went I went on a hunt. I drove somewhere, I went on a hunt, I killed something. Yeah. There's lots of that about. We wanted more than that. And I, I think, you know, we, we've got that from, from the content that we've got in. And some more so than others. Yeah. And, and in Ulrich's one in particular, you know, an incredible honesty. Yeah. Cheers to you, Ulrich. Yeah. I've had three or four glasses of scotch, but and now that I know that this is going to be released after you've uh, been announced uh, your prize, I congratulate you, sir, and I hope that uh, good things come your way and that you get to come over and bow hunt the United States sometime. Yeah. And just lastly, yeah, video and film as a medium. Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about print and modern huntsman. We know that you're going to be, because uh, you've already mentioned, doing more... Uh, moving picture content but generally speaking 
what direction do we need to be moving to achieve all the things that we've been talking about over yeah. the last hour when it comes to film? Because I think in particular, we've been quite bad historically in the last sort of 20 years in terms of the messages that could be taken away from films that have been made in the hunting space, especially by a non-hunting public. And and you're not you're not necessarily referring to the difference in the U.S. market. No, I'm just UK just generally market. speaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that, in my opinion, of the entries we watched or the 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 content we watch online, historically, a lot of these shows have been so focused on the kill shot. Right. It all leads up to this is what did you get the kill shot exactly? Yeah. You know, and, and we we you you and I we've been there, right? Whole, yeah. You know recount of my past as a hunting cameraman for years and years and years and um i think that if there's one thing i've learned through the process of modern huntsman and what has resonated the most with people is what happens to your mind and your heart on these hunts right what is going on internally to you as an individual uh you know whether that's the 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 tribulation or the introspection, or the remorse that yeah. you feel. And that seems to be what's of greater interest than whatever happens at the end of the hunt. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, some of those films we watched, nobody nobody killed anything. Yeah. You know? And I think that that in itself is um, something to consider um, because we've all seen, you know, a deer show. We've all seen kill shot reels. <laughs> we've all seen it, right? Yeah. It doesn't do anything. It, it's not new. No, it's not innovative, and it's certainly not doing as any good with with a non hunting public. So, I guess my suggestion, or you know, answer to that question would be: What can we do in terms of communicating? Um, you know, what we do and why it matters, not just to us, but maybe why it's relevant. Right. And and something like Danny, right? Or something like a local farmer creating a story that shares their perspective in a way that people can understand it. And maybe they're not gonna sign up for it, but at least they're gonna agree with they may not even have to agree with it. But they'll at least be thinking about it. And if that forsaken public poll comes up where there's potential legislative ramifications for this poll well maybe they don't speak out again against it that next time maybe they say oh you know what i actually disagree with this sensationalized news headline because i know so and so over in scotland and i know how hard it must be for him and his family and his three kids to do what they need to do and make it personalizes it as well yeah yeah we need more of that uh, and there is some great stuff out there, but mm-hmm. we we need more of it. Yeah. And I have every faith that we're. If you, as a listener, are thinking, well, where can I find more of that stuff? Keep an eye on the Modern Huntsman website because you're going to be seeing more of it there. Also, the Pace Brothers, because <laughs> if I have anything to do with it, y'all are going to be busy as hell uh, with films and work uh, coming up. Because um, you know, I, I think that we just there's so much synchronicity and uh you know there's been there were i think there definitely has been some parallel life living yeah in, in different parts of the world yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't know what took me so long to get over to scotland but <laughs> but now that you found the scotch oh, yeah <laughs> glass number three down and with that i'm gonna thank mm. you 
once again for taking the time to record a second podcast with me in the same 24 hours, especially with limited time before we have to get up and go to the airport. Yeah, just uh, just for frame of reference here to close this out, it is 12.23 a.m. in the morning. Uh, we got to get up in four hours yep. and drive an hour and a half to the Aberdeen Airport yep. so that I can fly to London Heathrow and then sit at London Heathrow for six hours and catch a flight from London Heathrow back to DFW, which is nine hours. Get oh, home, dear. unpack, repack, drive to Austin, and we are having a Modern Huntsman launch party at the Yeti flagship store. And you got to look fresh, ready, and and going to have all these same conversations again. I sure as shit I don't ha- <laughs> hope I don't have to give a speech. <laughs> ben O'Brien, save me. At this point, it'll be too late. But yeah. anyways, it's been fantastic, man. I really appreciate you having me back on. And Thanks for coming. Thanks yeah. for coming up from down south. Yeah. And I know that it's not going to be too long before you're back on again. I hope so. Cheers, man. Cheers. And that is it for another two weeks. Um, I was going to say something. I've completely forgotten what it was. It was something quite important. Oh, film festival. That's what it was. Uh, the speeches and everything were recorded. So you're actually going to get a special show in probably a week's time. Yes, uh, I'm going to put it together today. With, uh, with all the speeches. So that's pretty cool. So you'll be hearing from myself. You'll be hearing from Dear Fonda Langer. Uh You're going to be getting double doses of him because yeah. he's on a separate podcast as well. <laughs> Uh, Sam, Sam Thompson. Sam Thompson, who's was a, a massively popular podcast when we had him on, and David CP. So actually, everyone who's on there has yeah. been on the podcast, apart from me because I kind of host a little bit Dallas, of so. Ulrich, but he was a bit like overwhelmed with his for his prize. So. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, one week's time, and then we'll be bringing you the normal format of podcasts the week after. Indeed. Um, I was thinking. I was driving. I've been doing a lot of drone work, so I've been on the hills the last few days, and I was thinking the other day. Is there anywhere that you can think of, I'm talking to the listeners here, where it would be a good place to inform more people about the show, um, be it advertising at a small fee or for free, preferably mm. for free? Um, but yeah, we, we just want to get the word out more. And we're not. I'm not thinking like rifle magazines either. I'm thinking, you know, potentially, is there a farming magazine? Is there a countryside magazine? Or it doesn't actually have to be kind of countryside related because we're trying to reach as many people as possible. But I was thinking in my car that the listeners probably have a better idea of what uh, what's going on in other parts of the country and good places to... Yeah. Let, or let. if you would like to help yeah, spread the word of the show, get in contact with us because we can give you assets to allow you to yeah. do that. Yeah, that's no problem. Uh if you are listening to the show or new to the show, there's plenty of ways to listen that might be a bit more convenient. We actually got a message only yesterday asking the best way to listen and um, Spotify worked for them. So uh, yeah, try Spotify, then obviously iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, some people listen there. It is on YouTube as well, uh, but you can't download it. You have to stream it from there. Uh, Stitcher, Acast, it's on It's on all of them. So if you've got a podcast app, just take, type in Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness and it should pop up on most of them some of them are delayed i've noticed um with the android apps um but that's just because they might be a bit rubbish get an apple <laughs> yeah get an apple and have a phone that lasts two hours that's what i've got mm-hmm. my my car my phone an apple phone is the only phone i know that can be char- charging in the car and still losing power still, especially if you're doing like <laughs> you're using, doing it, for a using it for a or something. Yeah. unbelievable uh but apple need to get onto that they do. Well, they they were caught out. It was basically like the VW diesels, wasn't it? 
Oh, deliberately, the, deliberately reducing the deliberately reducing efficiency, efficiency your, and yeah. slowing down your phone so that it could cope with updates. But in reality, it's so that you had to buy a new phone every three or four years. I mean, that is the reality. Of I'm it. still I'm still running a 5s, <laughs> but I think its days are numbered because it, it it goes like an old PC where you hit something and you actually have to go and make a cup of tea. But, but you sometimes. know, you know, eventually, because I've got an old Apple iPod which I thought had died, which I managed to resurrect. Oh, on my computer. Only because Byron hadn't updated his computer for about ten years, <laughs> so the software he was running was old enough for the iPod to speak to. So anyway, so I managed to resurrect it, and it actually becomes a point because it's quite old, my iPod, that it just no app, new apps will download. Oh, because they're too advanced. They're too advanced for it. So, yeah, you can keep your phone for a while, but eventually stuff just will not download onto it. So there you have it. And uh, the same thing with cars. That's why everyone should have a Land Rover. Diaz is nearly choking on his own spit right now. We, we have a, a continual Land Rover Toyota feud whenever I see him. And uh, last time I was in South Africa, which yeah was the July last year, uh, no, actually, sorry, not the last time. The time before that, when I took Dad over to see Diophon and we were hunting, I did manage to get a picture of both Diophon and a mutual friend of ours who's also a PH in South Africa, both underneath their Hiluxes. And then yesterday, um, I took uh, we went into town, and I just wanted to check, because I've been working on my old Land Rover, that nothing was leaking with the new sump. And what does Diophon manage to snap? My legs underneath the Land Rover, so I got he got payback. <laughs> Uh, and that feud will go on and on. I, I was going to mention one more thing. There is something that I'm wanting to do with the show in the coming months. Um, we, you, know, you will not believe the amount of messages we get asking if we can bring out more episodes. And it's time. Time is a, a large problem. But secondly, it's it's kind of money in a way because it, it takes quite a while to do these shows. So we would love to bring out shows weekly. That would be one of our life's ambitions if we could afford to do it weekly. But it would pretty much mean one person had to be dedicated w- to Almost it. dedicated to it. But there is something I want to do coming up, which hopefully I can do, which is basically follow um, the lives of certain people, not for like weeks. I'm talking like a day. So um, we often uh, get messages about you know, why don't you look at this person? For example, a trainee gamekeeper. What do they do on a day to, you know, spend a day with them kind of recording outside and find out what they do. Uh, another one that I was thinking on was a dairy farmer. Um, there's a lot of things, a lot of hate towards dairy industry. Um, I don't know if they haven't noticed yet, but the entire London underground is kind of against them. Yeah. Um, and they need to do something about that. Um, but we want to find out what actually goes on because if you read any vegan posts about the dairy industry, they're basically the epitome of evil. So I want to find out find out the truth. Yeah, I'll be, be I'll be honest. I've never actually spent any time on a dairy farm. No. Um, so if there is actually anyone that knows any dairy farms in the northeast of Scotland that would be willing to have a chat and find out what goes on, see everything, um, then please send us an email. So I was going to say, uh, Eden, would, our friend Eden, who was actually, he was the one when I, I was recording the podcast last night that didn't want to come and sit down just in case I put a headset on him. Um, he spent a lot of time working in dairy farm, but in New Zealand. Uh, so I know his suggestion would be for us to all get on a flight so that we could go over there just so he had an excuse to go back to New Zealand. But yeah, maybe something slightly closer to home. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. And um, I mean, we can touch on this, but you know, the, you see the alternatives of almond milk and so on that people suggest. But I don't think people realize how much is involved in making almond milk and actually how good it is for the planet. Because It's a good point, though. Actually. Because um, most of the almonds are in uh, Western America. Uh, California, I think, 
And bear in mind, this place is a place that has very little water, so they have to pump loads and loads of water to these trees. And secondly, basically the entire bee population of the United States gets taken to this one area to pollinate all the almond trees, which is actually causing huge problems with disease with bees across the US, because you think you bring a whole population of any animal together, any disease is going to spread, and then they take them back to their states. And they reckon that has got a large problem to do with colony collapse, and the collapse of bees is because of things like this, and that's almond milk. So that's, that's meant to be better for the world. We need bees to live. Mm. And incidentally, I get my bees in two weeks. I knew you wanted to mention that. I was <laughs> yeah. going to give you a prompt. Yeah, I get my bees two in two weeks. weeks so, yeah, And uh, mine will just be pollinating flowers around where we live. And I think that's yeah, us. Yeah, that's it. For another week? Yeah.